Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto and DeFi. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and today on the show, we have Mason Nystrom, who is the Senior Research Analyst at Masari Crypto. Mason, thanks for being here with us today. How's everything going? I'm great, Tex. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So we usually like to start these off with just, if you could just give us your background and how did you get into the crypto space? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the kind of saying goes that everyone comes into crypto during a bull market. And so I entered in 2017, I was doing my MBA out in Hong Kong and really just wanted to start working. And so I started working for a local cryptocurrency exchange out there. Like most people loved the 2017 run up and even in 2018, when things kind of came crashing down, I still knew I wanted to be in crypto for the foreseeable future. And so came back to the States, joined Consensus, where I was on their marketing team, did everything from content to a little bit of strategy work for a lot of their portfolio companies, and then finally made my way towards Masari, where I've been for over a year and a half now as their kind of first Web3 analysts which kind of means like Web3 infrastructure, social tokens, NFTs, and, and kind of some of those more emerging trends. Can you give us a little background on Masari as well? Like when did Masari get started and what like, void is it trying to fill in the crypto space? Yeah, absolutely. So Masari was started uh, in 2018. And you can think of us as an intelligence platform for enthusiasts, professionals, and institutions. And so we have a variety of products across research, across real-time events monitoring, as well as a governance platform where individuals can track a variety of different uh, governance proposals in DAOs, as well as vote uh, directly from our platform. And so we're really trying to put together what uh, the Bloomberg terminal for crypto would look like. Yeah. And you also forgot to include awesome convention host. Because I was at Mainnet last year and I had a, an amazing time there. Uh, you were there too. I remember you were on one of the panels as well. Yes, Mainnet is our our flagship conference. Last year was our our first one, and this year's uh, is going to be uh, back in New York, and it's going to be bigger and better. So I don't know if tickets are on sale yet, but highly recommend everyone attend because it's uh, definitely a very high signal conference. We custom curate the content to what we want. And so it's a really just a, a really fun time. Do you have a date for that, for the one this year? I don't off the top of my head. If we do, it'll be on our website though. Okay. So in your role as a senior research analyst at Masari, what does that role entail? Like what does a senior research analyst do? My specific role as research analyst involves looking into a variety of protocols within my coverage sector and creating reports based on sometimes quantitative analysis, sometimes qualitative, qualitative analysis. And so, for example, that could be analyzing the NFT market and aggregating data sources, whether it's on Dune or CryptoSlam or uh, somewhere else to kind of look and see if there's any insights that uh, can be drawn about the market or qualitative, which might be something like focusing on digital land and kind of examining the, the kind of like bull and bear case for what you know, that might look like. Yeah. And I remember when I was getting into the crypto space around the same time as you, 2017, there weren't a whole lot of different subsectors of the crypto economy. It really just felt like, you know, 
payments blockchains or, you know, smart contract blockchains. Really, I, I mean, in my, just thinking back, th- those are the only two. So what parts of the crypto space interest you the most or, or what is your research based on? Because now we've got, you know, DeFi, layer ones, layer twos, the metaverse, web three, DAOs, the data economy, inf- you know, crypto infrastructure. Where is most of your research done? It's so fascinating to watch crypto expand uh, and it really has gotten to the point where you're not able to focus on, you know, every single sector to, to any degree. And so I would say, uh, for the most part, I don't really touch, let's call it like scalability, like L1s, L2s, or DeFi. And I tend to focus more on either the Web3 infrastructure side or the consumer side. And so the consumer side being NFTs, DAOs, um, and then from the Web3 infrastructure side, that uh, could refer to file storage protocols or data layers, other types of, uh, you can call it, think of it like, what would it take to rebuild the internet stack into, you know, decentralized protocols? So something like ENS or, uh, you know, Handshake might fall in there. And that's kind of how I look at the the Web3 infrastructure component of it. Okay, and let's just kind of get another broad view here, and then we'll start honing in on some specifics. But how do you see crypto in the and the metaverse i guess just from a broad macro sense right now like it it feels like nfts have kind of gone through their own speculative bubble where do you see all this you know right now if you were to step back from a macro sense yeah that's really a a great question i think that as the metaverse is top of mind for a lot of people the kind of natural question is where does crypto fit into it and so I think a, a really simplistic view is to look at the metaverse as kind of this this front end layer where you have experiences, you have games, you have you know worlds that are AR, VR, or even 2D. And when you talk about giving those worlds meaning, I think that you can kind of quickly come to things like digital property rights, identity, and these other types of primitives that we've grown accustomed to having in Web three. And so I view Web three as this back end infrastructure for the metaverse. And I think that, you know, it's going to take at least a decade for this to play out. But I do see them becoming more coupled over time. So I guess when you see people on Twitter saying, you know, get a job in Web3, I love working in Web3. Should they really just be saying, like, get a job working at a DAO? Because it feels like your definition of Web3 might be different from what a lot of other people's might be. It sounds like you feel like it's more of just like the infrastructure, like, chain link in the graph and, and Filecoin. I guess, what's your definition of Web3 and DAOs and the metaverse, just so we can kind of differentiate those three? I think this is, this is uh, like terminology has become kind of challenging. And so whereas I used to refer to Web3 as kind of just the infrastructure side, Web3 has kind of been rebranded to mean crypto as a whole. And so that could include layer ones. That could include uh, DeFi. And, and so while Web3 now kind of encompasses all that, I just view like Web3 infrastructure as like a subset, which would be Graph, Chainlink, and, and those types of protocols. As far as like DAOs and, and NFTs goes, I think those are really just kind of primitives of Web3 that can be applied to anything. And I mean, an NFT is just a file standard. A DAO is, you know, similarly like really hard to to subsector because you have both like protocol DAOs, which might be something like index, but you also have more social DAOs, which could be something like friends with benefits. 
Yeah. And I also feel like crypto is kind of in a unique place in the world right now. I think, you know, from a price action adoption standpoint, we're in a little bit of a bear market. But then when you look at some current events that are happening in the world, like with the Canadian trucker protest situation and Canada almost weaponizing the financial system against them, and then like people in the Ukraine, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, Bitcoin's role there and maybe not so much Ethereum's role or other digital assets as much. Do you feel like this is kind of bringing the the core, the like the first value proposition to the mainstream? Or are we just kind of in this bubble on Twitter where we just say, oh, you know, Bitcoin fixes this? You know, I, I, I think it has been a watershed moment for some individuals. Uh, I think the the Canadian trucker situation with closing bank accounts is pretty applicable to, you know, how most people don't realize the financial system can work against them. And so I'm, uh, I'll caveat with this, like I'm not a political strategist. And so this is all just a guess, but I think Bitcoin's role is, is becoming increasingly clear. It just represents this non-sovereign asset. Ethereum, on the other hand, potentially represents this credibly neutral monetary system. And, you know, the, there's, because like you have to have like over collateralized loans right now in Ethereum, there, there's limits to what uh, your average individual is going to use Ethereum for. What I actually think is the most interesting midterm use case from a political perspective is stable coins. Because if you think of something like USDC or digital dollars, that's really such a, a much more interesting dynamic when you talk about increasing dollarization around the world or vice versa for any other type of country's currency. And so the potential added controls, the ability to audit a money monetary supply, combine it with IP addresses and track payments, you know, I don't think it's necessarily the solution that everyone thinks it might be. I think there's going to be potential political implications as well. So would you consider yourself a, a maximalist in any way? Like, do you lean towards... Uh, the Bitcoin side or the Ethereum side, or are you just more of like a, a generalist and uh, I guess a crypto maximalist? Yeah, I would say agnostic in terms of chain. Uh, obviously, I, I'm i a researcher and so I kind of try and follow the data. And so in some places, Ethereum obviously is, is largely dominant. But I, I think that like Bitcoin has its place, Ethereum and other L1s will compete for their role and whatever ends up providing the best user experience, the best solution is, is going to win out. So do you think Bitcoin is a boomer coin? And do you think Ryan Selkis is a boomer because he loves Bitcoin so much? I don't think Ryan is uh, a boomer. Ryan, I think I would call him incredibly pragmatic. And, and so I think that BTC has largely become, like, let's call it the benchmark for crypto at this point in time, if you're looking at, you know, a portfolio, uh, that might even be like too generous. And you, you might even say like for any type of fund, like their benchmark might be like a 50-50 split portfolio of BTC and ETH. I'm under the impression that, that Bitcoin is never going to be a medium of exchange. Like it doesn't make sense to spend a deflationary asset. And to be completely honest, in my opinion, I don't think Bitcoin needs to be anything more than just a non-sovereign asset. That, that to me, is a, a good enough use case. So, yeah, I think that Bitcoin has its, has its place in, in this world. 
Well, and there are NFTs on Bitcoin as well, right? The I think the Pepe cards, or I, I forget what it is. Yeah. Do you have any familiarization with that? Since I guess your focus is more on the metaverse NFT Web3 side, because that's kind of one of the big, I guess, things that people say against Bitcoin is that you can't really, it's not compossible, you can't build on it. But people have been able to put NFTs on it. So how, how does that work? To be honest, I don't follow what's happening on Bitcoin as much from like the NFT side. It's just honestly not as interesting as what's happening on Ethereum or other layer twos or other chains. And I think that Bitcoin largely isn't going to find adoption there. And if it does, I it, it might be giving up some sort of security guarantees or it just might not have anywhere near the, the user functionality convenience costs that people are going to grow accustomed to over time. So while I, I admire a lot of people who are trying to, you know, build DeFi on Bitcoin, build NFTs on Bitcoin, I'm largely unconvinced that that uh, will be a, a fruitful path. Yeah, I and I totally agree with you there. I think the, the true value proposition of Bitcoin is not to be a place to store your NFTs or a place to do DeFi. It's just self-sovereign non-state money in a way for people to opt out of the traditional financial system if they choose to do so. But let's transition to a little bit more of, of your specialty. And I'm I'm focusing on the Masari 2022 thesis, which I'm a big fan of these thesis that come out every year. And one of your main focuses or things that you're bullish on in 2022, and I'm just going to read these off here, is modularity, NFT platforms, the Metaverse Index, which is an index co-op product, Web3 infrastructure, pool, creator monetization, Cosmos, data availability layers, ZK rollups, Coinbase, USDC, Metaverse infrastructure, governing tools, and loyalty point exchanges. So we're going to touch on quite a few of these. But first, out of all those, from the time that that was released to now, has Anything changed, like stuff that maybe you were more bullish on at that time that you're less bullish on now or vice versa? I think I'm still largely bullish on most of these concepts. I think NFT platforms is going to be kind of interesting just because there are a new slew of competitors that are coming out. So like you have individual, like call them specialized marketplaces for call it music. Uh, and then you also have aggregators that have emerged and started doing considerable volume like Jam and Genie. And, and so I, I think that I didn't expect that market to, to subset as quickly. And so I've kind of started to reevaluate like what, where kind of all that plays out. Uh, but for the most part, I think everything else I'm, I'm still quite, quite fascinated in. Yeah. So let, let's focus on the metaverse now. Just kind of conceptually, like, what do you feel like Web3's role in the metaverse is? And what other types of Web3 infrastructure need to be built in order for the metaverse to gain mass adoption? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the the metaverse has kind of been this rebranding of AR and VR. And right now, like, however you kind of want to define it, whether you want to look at interesting virtual worlds like the sandbox and Decentraland, or if you want to say that the metaverse is happening kind of more in the uh, existing, like, Facebook type realm, all of them are, are kind of converging to the same point, which is they're going to 
try and issue tokens. Uh, they're going to try and add digital property rights to the assets. They're going to try and build user profiles, so-called identity, amongst uh, different wallet addresses. And so I view Web3 as providing a lot of that tooling and infrastructure for the metaverse. I'm actually you know, more interested in like the AR component over like VR. I just think it's like inherently more social and, and more interesting. But if you think about it from what, how do we get, how do we tokenize VR and AR assets? Like that's still fairly nascent. You know, you have a couple companies that are doing it. So you need infrastructure from that point of the perspective. If we want to build a metaverse on a credibly neutral tech stack, then you need everything from computation to storage to indexing to, you know, the name, uh, name services. And so I think all of those things are, are protocols, are applications that are being built in crypto. And we'll hopefully see more adoption as the metaverse is built on that tech stack versus uh, whatever Facebook. Yeah, and you said something I want you to uh, elaborate on a little bit, and that's that you feel like AR, you're a little bit more bullish on AR versus VR. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit as to why? So this is just like a a personal opinion. I grew up playing video games. Uh, I loved RuneScape as a kid. And while I see like the, you know, the gaming kind of world continuing, I think VR still obviously has a long ways to go before it gets to a point where people want to spend a significant portion of their time there on a you know daily basis. AR to me is so because you're just bringing that technology into the existing world. If you think of kind of successful AR applications, whether it's like Pokemon Go or even Snapchat filters, there's such an interesting monetization perspective there because I could totally see a world where Snapchat is just issuing filters as NFTs and you're just connecting that and that allows you to use the filter. And so different types of AR exist. Some you know are just from your phone and then others can be from uh, different types of hardware. And so to, to me, that's just a, a more compelling vision of, of technology in the future than VR at this point in time. And something that I thought that I would see slow down, and it has slowed down significantly to what it was uh, about around this time last year, was the profile pick NFTs. What are your thoughts on those? Like, have we reached the the point yet to where, you know, enough is enough? Or are there going to be some blue chips that still maintain this value? And, you know, we can also touch on the ape token uh, for the board eight yacht yacht club that just dropped. But w- what is your general thoughts on NFTs if, as PFPs? Yeah. So if you would ask me this question when I first started Masari, I uh, definitely would not have guessed that PFPs, avatar NFTs, would have taken off as significantly as they did. And I kind of view, I view these PFPs, these avatars as the equivalent of consumer, new consumer brands. And so if you compare it to something like Supreme or Louis Vuitton, the key value that someone is providing is that social signaling, that kind of status good. And so from that perspective, I think that you're going to get some PFPs that stick around, continue to be valuable. Uh, you know, what Twitter did with allowing people to verify NFTs, I think only further cements the value of them uh, because you know it further ingrains this idea that this is unique, this is mine, I, I do own this and I can showcase it. And as that continues, I think more and more 
you know, j- just like we have tons of consumer brands, like they will continue to release those types of projects. But I do think we'll we'll start to see a pretty big gap between those that are successful and those that are not. Yeah, and another thing you mentioned in the 2020 thesis was the metaverse index. So I'm also curious, you know, like what has your involvement been with Dark Force Capital and AG, who are the methodologists behind the metaverse index? And what are your thoughts on indexing in general as a financial tool to help people diversify? I've worked with Dark Forest and AG uh, a little bit. My, my role, to be completely honest, has been fairly minor. Initially, I helped review the methodology, and then I uh, kind of have reoccurring meetings uh, with them to review assets that might qualify for the index or to kind of discuss what might be coming down the pipeline in terms of assets that are launching, just to kind of potentially get ahead of what the index might have to include. I think they've done an incredible job with MVI, and I'm really excited that MetaPortal, which is their uh, new entity, is also launching a, a gaming index called Game. And I, I think that the M- MVI from its like first construction, because it is methodology-based, was less appealing than it is today, just because the, it's a testament to how much the industry has grown. And so I think for the most part, I would own every asset in MVI today based on its, its current makeup. And I do think that that just kind of shows the power of indexing. If, if you would have asked me if Axie would have done well, you know, last year, I thought it would, but I could not have predicted its success. I could not have predicted the success of uh, Sandbox and Decentraland. And so uh, an index just kind of allows you to uh, remove your own subjective judgment. And so I think that it's definitely a valuable tool in any investors' portfolio, especially those who just want broad exposure. And you bring up an interesting point there. Like, Do you feel like some of these metaverse protocols, the tokens, do you feel like the protocol justifies the price of the token? Like Axie Infinity, I forget what its market cap is right now, but, but comparative to like other assets within the space, it does seem a little high. And I think you can say that with Alluvium too, you know, that they, I don't even think they have a, a working product out right now are you still as bullish on this space given the recent price action or what are your thoughts there yeah so obviously none of this is financial advice just kind of get that caveat out of the way yeah, absolutely <laughs> but, yeah. but um you know a, a big criticism i've always had and continually have of crypto is that the valuations are astronomical compared to call it what is built at any given time and so i i think that there are a few reasons for this. One is crypto is inherently speculative. And so you have a lot of capital uh, that is just ready to uh, enter the system. But I also think that in certain se- sectors or subsectors, there, there is a lesser amount of, of real players uh, uh, of like competent teams from the onset. And so a premium gets applied to a lot of those protocols, companies or assets. And so I am someone who, you know, on my tombstone, it will read like fully diluted value matters. And like, I'm okay with not investing in something because I take the approach of a long-term investor. And so I look at fully diluted value. I think that it matters if you're looking to uh, invest in a, in a long time horizon. So uh, I do think that to your point, some things are, are overvalued and 
it kind of just takes time for the market to to sort that out. Yeah, and I'd be willing to bet that the people who are in the Discord right now listening to this live and the people who are still interacting on Twitter, you know, when Gway is, you know, low relative to what it's been the past two years, I'd be willing to bet that these are the people who are actually here for the longer term. And so maybe like in a bull market, it might be better to focus on just, you know, the valuation market cap based on the circulating supply. But, you know, in, in a bear market, when you're looking more long term, maybe focus more on the fully d- diluted valuation. Is that kind of what you're saying? Or do, do you feel like you should just focus on it regardless if you have a long term investment horizon, not financial advice? Yeah. So my personal philosophy on investing is that you have to know what type of investor you are. And everyone thinks that investing is just one game, but it's actually multiple games depending on the type of investor you 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 know preference for. And so if you're a short-term trader, like you have to understand that that game is much different than if you're a long-term investor. And so someone like a hedge fund is gonna have is going to look at just a circulating supply versus like a venture fund with a five to ten year lockup. The circulating supply is irrelevant because liquidity doesn't come for a decade anyway. And so I tend to, to look at my portfolio construction on the later half in terms of like a, a long-term investor, just because I find that that's more compelling uh, to me rather than chasing, you know, kind of the, the next trend. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of the next trends, it's a good segue. <laughs> I feel like, uh, you know, we're starting to find all these new avenues and pipelines to onboard new users into the crypto space which also like helps alleviate some of these like short term price dips, right? I feel like people that came in during, you know, a, a play to, you know, start playing a, a doing a play to earn protocol or, or game, I, I feel like they're sticking around and they're paying a little bit more attention to people that would come into the space, you know, just to speculate on the price of Dogecoin. So, you know, I feel like first it was just like non-state money was the thing that got people in here in, in cryptography. And then it evolved into DeFi, which kind of got some of the finance bros involved in the space. And then it moved on to NFTs, which started to bring in the, the creator economy. Do you have any speculation onto what is next? Like what is that next pipeline that's going to be built that will bring in the next generation or the next class of crypto users? That's a great question. My intuition is that NFTs are, let, let's call it the most consumer-facing application of crypto that we've had. DeFi was interesting to a subset of people, smart contracts to a subset of people, Bitcoin a subset of people. But NFTs are, are by and large, I think, what, what get a majority of users into crypto in the foreseeable future. And so if we kind of think of NFTs and, and their natural progression, their evolution, the first really breakout use case was art. The static image uh, makes sense. Something static is going to be the easiest lift for an NFT. And then we're progressively getting more dynamic in terms of what NFTs can offer, but also how they can be incorporated into other types of applications. And so I view the that as one very fascinating adoption that will bring more people into the space. Uh, you've seen it with music NFTs. You'll probably see it with video. You'll see it with other types 
of content as well. And like the other kind of aspects that I see as being like fairly consumer friendly are, are obviously DAOs, social tokens. You have platforms like Juicebox DAO that were used for the Julian Assange, you know, NFT purchase donation, as well as for Constitution DAO. That to me is just Kickstarter on steroids. And crypto inherently is, is enables anyone to fund anything. And so that to me is kind of like a clear progression in terms of, okay, we let anyone form a company. Now we're just letting anyone kickstart their own project, whether it's going to be small or large. And so those are two, definitely two trends that I see uh, continuing in the future. There is from kind of the more development side, a lot of infrastructure being built out that will potentially enable new applications uh, on top of them as well. Yeah, let's talk about that infrastructure side too. Like what are some protocols or projects that you're looking at that are building out that infrastructure that's needed? Yeah, from the NFT side, I think you have financial infrastructure, you know, increasing NFT liquidity, even easier to buy, sell, exchange, I think is really important. As I kind of mentioned previously, I mean, you have a lot of protocols that are marketplaces like NFTX, you have obviously art marketplaces like Super Rare and then kind of the aggregator space that is making it easy to batch buy and, you know, batch lists on a variety of different platforms. The other kind of like last piece of NFT infrastructure that's really exciting is just indexing across a variety of blockchains. You know, we're now at a point where Flow, Solana, Ethereum have billions in NFTs that have been traded cumulatively. And how that plays out in terms of like what platform becomes dominant for NFTs or, you know, do certain platforms become more used for let's call it like more permissioned NFTs uh, is also like a, a really interesting question that I don't necessarily have, have an answer to. I'll pause there and then we can kind of get to the, the other type of infrastructure. Okay, sure. No, yeah, you can, you can keep going. That's fine. Okay, cool. <laughs> so um, from the, like the other types of infrastructure, and this is might be more from the, you know, like computation uh, storage side of things you have, protocols, storage protocols like Arweave, Filecoin, which is built obviously incentivized IPFS. And they're starting to have kind of like their layer two moments and, and ways to incentivize even further scalability there. So like Bundler, for example, is a layer two solution on top of Arweave that has been fairly successful. And then you have other existing protocols like Livepeer that have started to really come into their own once they had their 2020 Streamflow upgrade. Uh, which enabled GPU usage that really kind of catalyzed a adopt a, a strong adoption for life here from a transcoding services provider. And then additionally, you have you know other types of similar type of resource networks like Akash, for example, that allow uh, CPU usage and are going to turn on GPUs, which I think are going to further catalyze uh, adoption. Render network is another example of a like a use network usage protocol that is important for you know rendering nfts or images in the metaverse uh, or any virtual world yeah and i think some protocols that you haven't touched on we know when i think about data storage and i guess like indexing and some of this web3 infrastructure is you know along the chain link and the graph lines is there a reason you didn't mention those or are they just like so popular it's it's not even worth mentioning yeah, I mean, I think that they're fairly, they're, they're some of the most known protocols when it comes to like Web3 infrastructure. The graph is kind of in a, a league of its own with indexing. Chainlink, obviously, 
it's fairly utilized. It's out of out of the box solutions for, you know, like it's random number generator, uh, it's Oracle services is fairly utilized. And so like, I'm, I think been around for, for a decent enough time that they're just more discussed. And then like live peer is just like, it's so hilarious to me for some reason, because I think I got airdropped some LPT tokens like back in 2018, just randomly yep. into some, <laughs> like some old Ethereum wallet that I don't even, I hardly use anymore. And then it, it really came into its own last year. And it like, does it really take that long from like, I guess 2018 to t- late 2021 to build up? A, a product like that and i don't know do you have any opinions on when is it too early to issue a token yeah i definitely think for for certain types of protocols there's more technical risk there's more timing that it just takes to to build the solution and so you know live here is a perfect example where there there's so much that they wanted to do part of it is was limited by, you know, they had to build out staking contracts and the token economic design for Livepeer that that operated on Ethereum. But then they also had to garner this massive network supply of people who wanted to provide transcoding services. And so that just takes time. And I think you've seen that across the board for most of the, call it like infrastructure type protocols. Is it just, you know, they're not as easy to use yet as they need to be. And so, for example, like making file storage protocols easier to use is, you know, a massive undertaking. And so you have companies like Pinata, for example, which are a more centralized storage version that uses IPFS. But then you also have protocols that are kind of these web 2.5 protocols that are bridging the gap. So like something like Filebase lets you come to their website and they let you plug into any variety of of decentralized file storage solution and make that process really easy for you. And so, you know, so much time has been focused building these protocols that the the usage part is, is kind of next and just takes time. To answer your, your second question on is there like two is there a correct time to release a token? I definitely think that there is. I it's my personal belief that a lot of protocols companies like shoot themselves in the foot by releasing a token too early rather than building out a product and making sure that that product has product market fit, you know, from a certain point. Cause then once you find product market fit, the the flywheel that you can implement using a token, using those, you know, economic incentives is much better than just launching a token and, and giving rewards for a liquidity pool. Yeah, and another one that you and I have talked about is ceramic, which I believe you you recently angeled into ceramic. Do you just want to give us like a little shill your bag moment and tell us like what what is ceramic and why do you feel like that's important to the space? Yeah, absolutely. So ceramic is a permissionless data layer that enables for composable data. And so on ceramic, you can kind of think of it as a, a layer one for data. And so it's not necessarily a, a blockchain in, in what you can consider a blockchain, but the core use case is enabling for data composability. And the reason that like that is important is because it allows anyone in a network to take that existing data and adapt or build applications using that data. And so if you compare that with today's web, 
which data is incredibly siloed. You have Google and Facebook and Amazon who are all just replicating the same data sets that they can, but just closed to themselves. Uh, means that that data isn't accessible to anyone. It's not portable. And the biggest detriment to that is limit innovation. Think of the what what makes Ethereum so wonderful is that anyone can build on top of any other protocol and there's no limit to what you need uh, in order to start a new protocol. And that is incredibly powerful when you talk about just creating that flywheel of new companies, new economic activity. Yeah, and I, I also want to backtrack a little bit because I, you also talked about social tokens. And can you like define for our audience, you know, what is your definition of social tokens? What are the different types? And how do social tokens compare to NFTs? Or can NFTs also be social tokens in a way? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a perfect definition any more of social tokens. I've kind of tried to map it out as a, a token that represents an individual or community. And so I've kind of classified it into social tokens that are individual social tokens. So that could be someone like Kerman who issued his own social token. Community social tokens, which represent a, a community, which could be something like friends with benefits. You know, membership is often like a kind of key component of it. And the third class that I look at is social token platforms. And that might be something like Rally, which enables other people to launch their own social tokens on top of it, but has the, the Rally token act as collateral for all the other social tokens. When you look at them compared to NFTs, they offer very similar use cases. And so I, they've, they've had a very more recent like competition in terms of should a creator issue a social token or should a creator issue an NFT? And I, I largely think that NFTs are easier at this current juncture. Uh, when you think of an individual issuing uh, a social token, one of the, the hardest aspects is ensuring that you're providing like consistent value. And so, for example, I'm under like the, the personal belief that, as I'm sure as a lot of other people, that most tokens will eventually have cash flows, but that's not really possible right now with, with a lot of social tokens. And so I think a lot of individuals opt for an NFT that just has a, a simpler business model. So could a social token be like an artist issues, like a music artist issues a social token and the owners of that token could potentially get a portion of the revenue generated by that artist? Is, you know, is that a way that you could tie revenues to a token? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that would be a great way to do it. It's just a lot of people are worried about securities laws and rightfully so. Like you don't want to issue a security that that is one. And so a lot of individuals, whether they be artists, whether they be creators, whoever else have chosen to issue an NFT, because then you can kind of add a royalty to it, which is just a, an easier business model and, and, you know, looks less like a security than a social token. I think another thing that's another trend that's been happening in the NFT space is that OpenSea has been getting a lot of, a lot more competition lately, you know, with, NFTX, Nifty Museum, Looks Rare, and then even the Coinbase NFT market, if that ever comes out, right? And then I, I think that's also been kind of accelerated by those NFT aggregators, which you mentioned, like Jim and Genie. So are you bearish on OpenSea? Like, if you could, would you short 
OpenSea or do you feel like they've got such a strong hold on that marketplace? I think they have a pretty strong hold on their marketplace at this point in time. That doesn't mean that a, a competitor can't emerge. Um, if a competitor does emerge, I think it'll look something more like Gem than it will like looks rare, just given the kind of dynamics. If you think about OpenSea, it, it has some aspects of it that provide really powerful moats that you don't really think about. And so like one quick example is that there's a listing cost to putting anything up for auction on OpenSea. And that's a big point of friction because if you're uh, even using an aggregator that's going to let you list across multiple marketplaces, paying a fee to list on you know every marketplace is cost prohibitive. And so either we need to get to this point where gasless minting is common across the board or just a, a point where transaction costs are a lot lower and, and most of that moves to an L2. So I, I think that... Coinbase, FTX, like they'll probably be decent competitors given their like current juncture. You know, they have uh, a lot of users and at, at the end of the day, like that's really important when you're talking about NFT sales. One potential way that a competitor could compete against OpenSea is as we get to this world where more NFTs start to look like securities, you know, kind of pulling the unit of we're going to list an asset, you know, it might be a security, it might not be, but people are going to be able to trade it. Uh, versus OpenSea, which is probably going to face more regulatory scrutiny given that it's an actual company. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. And so are you involved with any DAOs currently? Or, you know, uh, I, I can see a world where Masari would encourage you to be involved in a DAO to get that experience and see what's going on in the space. But it's also kind of having two jobs at the same time. So I guess what has your involvement been in DAOs, or do you even have time to participate in DAOs? Yeah, so I would say that I've I've loosely participated, but for the most part, I, I don't have time to go deep enough and be too active of a member on any given DAO. Masari does encourage us to participate in, let's call it like the crypto ecosystem, whether that's a DAO, whether that's some other type of organization. And so, for example, one of our former analysts, Ryan Watkins, he was a big contributor to uh, urine finance and even proposed uh, their buyback solution. And so as crypto grows and Masari analysts become more specialized and have pretty ingrained thoughts and opinions, I think we'll be a, a world where, you know, we're more active in some of these protocols. So uh, we're kind of getting a little bit closer to the end here, but what other hot takes do you have? Like, what, do you have any takes that you feel like is contrarian or goes against the grain of the general ecosystem that we haven't quite touched on yet? I guess one hot take that I've kind of recently outlined is kind of like bull and bear case of digital land. And I find when we're talking about like digitally scarce land that is ownable, I'm, I'm less convinced that that is going to capture value in the long term for for several reasons. And kind of like a, a core assumption of that is that if you try to compare the network effects that physical land has, there's a lot of reasons that, that physical land is valuable. You know, whether it comes from like food, water, shelter, or even, you know, if you think of like Silicon Valley as like a uh, a city network effect. Okay, you, you had the semiconductor industry, which spawned the venture capital industry, which spawned the startup industry, and 
all of that is pretty powerful in terms of a network effect versus if you look at virtual real estate, that doesn't really hold true, or at least the network effect is, is, farly, is far more limited in terms of uh, it's based on experiences and uh, kind of social, social status. And so that's potentially one hot take. <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting because I, I had Dark Forest and AG on a few weeks ago, and that, this was a topic that we talked about as well. And I think I remember reading a thread that you posted on Twitter. And one of the points you made is like, you know, virtual land doesn't need access to, to plumbing or water, or, you know, it doesn't necessarily need walkability or need to be close to downtown to have value, but true real estate does. And so uh, are you, do you feel like you're just a bigger fan of protocols or projects that are kind of go with the, the infinite land strategy? Yeah, I think uh, if you if you look at the existing games that have been super successful, whether it's like Minecraft, um, you know, there there are these user content networks where one of the key value propositions is that anyone can create anything, and eventually they create memes, they create new game types, they create viral moments that you know Twitch streamers want to stream them just doing something, and that dynamic is a lot harder in a world where land is scarce because if you can't just build anything, if you can't just create content, then you're limiting what consumers can do. And so the experiences could still be there in digitally scarce land and, and that can still be valuable and exciting, but you do have constraints from potentially like what can be created from your users or other developers. And I'm wondering if that translates to just digitally scarce items in general and i'm not talking about i'm not talking about like bitcoin or ethereum but more of like you know kind of like the nft pfp space or you know thinking about decentral games where you need to purchase for their ice poker you know you need to purchase this nft i guess wearable for your avatar so you can gain access into that poker room or you can delegate that to someone and they can play for you and you get a portion of that revenues. Do you, do you feel like that translates at all? And in, in where does it and where does it not? I, d I don't think that does translate. So if, like, let's take an example of a, a PFP. So something like MeBits uh, is like a really interesting example because the MeBit is this like 3D object that you can import into another game. And so I think a, a more compelling model potentially. So like if you contrast it with Fortnite where they license digital you know, avatars, digital skins from Marvel or whoever uh, and bring it into their game. I think there's potentially a world where Marvel creates, you know, an Iron Man skin and they just let uh, someone license that into any type of game. So you get these, this, you know, rather than like selling something different to all these companies, you create this one collection that can then be used across a variety of applications. And I think that's just more a more compelling model for for how something might play out. And you can see that being different with let's call it like not like non-crypto native IP versus crypto native IP. So like Marvel might be super hesitant to let anyone incorporate their their content, but someone like Board Ape might uh, be very pro, hey, if you just you know bring our avatars into your game, we're cool with that. Feel free to to integrate it as you see fit. 
Yeah, what are your thoughts on the future of play to earn, like with Axie, Infinity, and Decentral Games? Is that going to run its course at some time, or is this just a, a new paradigm that we're seeing in the crypto space? And, and I guess just in work in general. Yeah, it's an interesting model, but in its current form, I think it's kind of, it's gotten over its ski tips. And, and by that, I mean, the play to earn feels very reminiscent of when the iPhone first came out and you had the app store and you know what, what you could buy was limited. And so everyone was like, cool, this like lighter on my phone that uh, I can light or this skateboard that can flip. And, you know, the types of, of early games and applications that came out were, you know, pay once and then you get access to the game. And that's a fine model, but I do think the free-to-play model, that freemium model, is generally better. And so as kind of, if you look at, you know, play-to-earn, it's really right now pay-to-play-to-earn because you have to put in hundreds to thousands of dollars up front to partake in anything. And so I think we can move to a free-to-play-to-earn where there's some base level of the game that is free that uh, you can interact with, you can earn, and then you know there can be other types of up- upgrades. And I think games have to really balance how they incorporate payments because the last thing that any gamer wants is for something to be pay to play. And a lot of times that's why you've seen games like Fortnite choose to monetize the cosmetics rather than actual call it like gameplay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Can you think of any protocols that are doing the free to play to earn right now or building that out? I cannot No. I think that it's so much easier to monetize right now. If you're just a play to earn game, I think there are a lot of games that are going to be call it in development for the next 12 to 24 months. And so if we do see a, a slowdown in, you know, this particular monetization model of gaming i think you could see them pivoting to to different models but so far i haven't really seen anyone do that or at least none come to mind immediately yeah this has been a a really fun conversation for me because i feel like i've just kind of said what do you think about this protocol and this protocol and you just kind of give me your opinion which typically (laughs) when we do these i'm interviewing like a co-founder and we're talking about one specific protocol so yeah this is this is fun but on that note, yeah, likewise. Yeah, I'm just, I'm curious about like what other projects out there, and this could be Metaverse or DeFi or or like another Layer One or an L2. But like, what other projects out there should people keep be keeping their eye on? Like, what are some really good teams out there building stuff that maybe people are not paying attention to? That's a a good question. I mean, I can speak obviously. Like I've spoken very highly of ceramic. I think that's going to be very compelling as well as some of the potential applications that are going to develop on top of them. And then, I mean, I've, I've mentioned a lot of the things that I, I find interesting, you know, from file storage to other types of, of applications. I'll say that I'm really excited for like resource networks. So how can people monetize like the Airbnb style? So there's this abundant resource that people aren't using. And how can it be monetized? And so like GPUs are like a perfect example. You know, live peer uses GPUs, render uses GPUs, Hosh will eventually use GPUs. And so I think that's like a really compelling business model. And so that really excites me as well as just other types of infrastructure. I think that we've only kind of just started looking at the type of liquidity infrastructure on the NFT side of things. And there's going to be a lot of different experiments 
over the next 12 months. So I'm, I'm pretty uh, actively watching that market as well. Yeah, that's because my thoughts kind of been lately is that there's so many people focusing on layer two and ZK rollups. And, you know, that that is definitely going to be the next big thing, in my opinion. But I'm also starting to take a look elsewhere and say, okay, but what's after that? And I feel like it, it does keep going to the Web3 infrastructure or the, the data economy infrastructure, um, which is why I'm a little bit bullish on our data economy index. Not to shill our products, but I, I am. So, you know, I wouldn't say that if I wasn't. So uh, you're, you're just confirming a lot of the things that I have been thinking lately. And yeah, I, I guess that that's pretty much all the questions I have. And we're kind of running up on time right now, but I guess, yeah. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you want to talk about specifically or in general? I just have a question for you. Sure. What has it been like working for a DAO? Because Index Crop is definitely one of the, I, I want to say like the more established DAOs. They have uh, you know, uh, uh, several different working groups, several different product lines. I'd love to just know what that experience has been like. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for asking. I've... I've been doing this for almost a year with the index co-op and I like, I've been in the space since 2017 and I do have a full-time traditional finance job, which is why I'm crypto Texan and my PFP is a bastard punk instead of, you know, being my real name and my real picture. But I think it's been really interesting. And I, I think it's just important to keep in mind that we're early in the sense that we're just trying to we're trying to figure this out as we go, and we're looking to other DAOs and other organizations and see how they run things well. And I think inherently you've got to pull stuff from the traditional, you know, legacy world to try to build what we are trying to build. And you know, I, I feel like the term DAO, the centralized autonomous organization, can sometimes be a misnomer because it feels more like we're, we're a company that's built on top of the blockchain, but with no like true legal standing anywhere, I guess, I guess yeah. like technically we would be considered like a general partnership in, in the United States, uh, but we're all over the world. Right. So I, I would say that I have felt like, I just feel like the, the type of person, the type of worker and the type of personality that DAOs attract is a very unique individual in the sense that, and I, I learned this early on, right? When I first started getting involved in the co-op, you know, it, it's, yeah, asking what should I do is a good way to get started, but a better way is to just do things. Like you really have to be a self-starter in a DAO and just, you know, just keep moving along and chugging along and, and pushing the DAO your own way instead of having someone tell you how to push the DAO forward. And I think like, you know, like if you go to a job interview, I think something that the job interviewer wants to hear you say is that you're a self-starter and you do things on your own. I think that's great. And I think everybody says that in every interview, whether they mean it or not, but in a DAO, you, you have to be that because if you're not the flow of the work, force is so fluid that someone's going to come in and take your spot. And I don't know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's great for the DAO and the organization as a whole. Is it good for that person? Well, maybe not, but, uh, 
but the type of people that I work with at the NX Co-op are just so laser-focused, self-driven, and that is the most rewarding part to me. So, you know, right now it's 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 something I do on the side. Well, I I say I don't really I can't really call it a part-time job because I do this way more than part-time, but I would call it very fulfilling. And it's, it's a good addition to what I do in the traditional finance world. And, and something, it's something different and innovative too, because the landscape is always changing from a legal standpoint and from a, just an innovation standpoint. And luckily, like in the bear market now, the news headlines have slowed down a little bit so I can catch up on things. But in general, that, those, those are my thoughts. I feel like I rambled on there for a little bit. I'm not used to people asking me questions on this, so... Uh, no, I, I appreciate, appreciate uh, no, I, I appreciate the response. I, I think that that's like so, so many people, I think so often are so euphoric about DAOs when I think that they still have a, a really long way to go. And, and like, they're, they're definitely, I think there's still a lot of existing pain points. DAOs are really great at capital fundraising, but I think that they, they can definitely get better from an ops perspective. And so like when you mentioned being a self-starter is really important. I, wholeheartedly agree. I think that you need that in a DAO right now. And I think the question is, how can we uh, then get to the point where you can have a multi-thousand person organization where not everyone is a self-starter and you can introduce some hierarchy that might resemble a a more traditional company. But that's, I guess, like a a boomer take for for another day. Yeah. And I think another thing is that that's really been interesting for me is when the index co-op does face like some adversity internally. And how is that resolved? And how are people working together to, you know, I I think it's just very important to have like core values and a mission and just keep referring back to that, right? And make sure that everything that we're doing is adhering to those core values in that mission. And that's the best way, I think, to get people aligned from just like a cultural and organizational standpoint. But I, I, I think another thing is like, just because someone wants to work for a DAO, doesn't mean you have to let them work for a DAO, right? Like, yeah. Like we have people that come in all the time that say, Hey, I want to join. And they don't really follow up. It goes back to that self-starter mentality, I guess. Like, like you really have to prove your, your worth in the space. And I'm still rambling. We've gone over time, but I think one of my favorite things is that when you do see someone pop up and say, Hey, I'm interested. I want to start joining. I want to start contributing. And then you really see them start contributing, right? They're like leading calls. They're tweeting about the index co-op. They're hosting Twitter spaces and just watching someone come from nowhere and just rise to the top of the organization. is just, it's the coolest thing, man. It it really is. And I've seen that so many times and that's another part that's really fulfilling to me. So. No, definitely. I, uh, I appreciate the insights and I I agree that there's a lot of, rewarding potential that, that can come from working for a Medow. Yeah. Well, Mason, like I said, we're up on time, but I appreciate you coming on to the podcast with us. Everyone who's listening live, thank you for listening live. This is being recorded and we're going to get this out in about a week. So Mason, again, I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Tex. This has been a blast. All right. Talk to you later. 